0: Hi, everyone. This is Andy, host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm really excited for the mini series we have this week on venture capital investing. You know, I've done a lot of angel investing in my life. I'm a limited partner in one VC fund, but I'm hungry to learn more. And the roster of guests that we have lined up this week, uh, they're really so generous in sharing their insights and knowledge on VC investing. So I really hope you enjoy this mini series this week on VC. Now, if this show has helped you at all, I have one ask of you, which is, could you log on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave us a rating and review. It doesn't take much time. It helps spread the word to other investors and entrepreneurs, and it would really mean the world to me. Thanks so much and enjoy the mini-series. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need To grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagans. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Andy Hagans and today we're talking about the work revolution and venture capital investment from the perspective of a GP, from that inside perspective. So I'm very excited that joining me today is Gail Wilkinson, who is managing partner at Vitalize Venture Capital. Gail, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Andy. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, it's I'm so excited to have you here because it's funny, you guys are great at marketing because I was like, I just found Vitalize like clicking around surfing LinkedIn or I like, I forget how exactly I found it, but I didn't even know. I know you obviously, but I didn't even know it was your fund. And then I was like clicking around and I saw Gail I was like, wait a minute, I know Gail. That's my Gail. So you <laughs> yeah, guys so are- the
1: listeners, Andy and I went to school together many years ago. Um, so we had we have a former life together as friends.
0: <laughs> yes, we do. And 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 Gail, I also remember your being involved in angel investing, you know, even like a decade ago. And it's been so cool to just, you know. I kind of meet up with you like every five years or whatever. And then the next time I kind of came across it, I was like, wow, she has her own fund. This thing is awesome. So why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Like how did, how did you come to be running a venture capital fund?
1: Sure. Sure. So I I started a couple of businesses many years ago, both of those failed. One of them was when I was in business school. And when I left business school, I wanted to have something that I was running. I had learned over time that I'm definitely a good fit for early stage um, organizations Mm -hmm. and had the opportunity in 2012 to start an angel network that was Irish angels, which is a a group that is affiliated with the university of Notre Dame, which is where Andy And I went to school and um, ran that for nine years. That was a lot of fun. We invested in about 50 companies while I was there and deployed um, quite a bit of money into all of these companies. Um, concurrently in 2017, had some of my angels come to me and say, Hey, we really want to buy a basket of your stuff. We must sell a couple of great deals back in 2013. And, uh, what do you think about raising a small fund? I hadn't thought about it, but it seemed like a good time to do it. So raised a proof of concept fund that was $16 million in 2018, um, and deployed that over the following three or four years.
0: You say that so casually, like, oh, just, you know, 16 million bucks. But in the venture capital world, that's a pretty small fund, right?
1: Yes. Uh, most funds are much larger than that.
0: But, you know, it's it's interesting because to me, smaller capital, there's like, it it enables opportunities. Whether you're talking about private equity, venture capital, angel or whatever, it's like would running a, a billion dollar million fund be fun and interesting and all that, like, of course, but well, but then there's, there's things that you'd be giving up right with, with, with not being as nimble. Do you think that's fair?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a founder. And so we have a team of four full-time and three part-time, and that's perfect for somebody like me who likes to move quickly, who likes to empower the rest of the team to do what they do best. Um, you know, back to, you said you found us on marketing. I decided a couple of years ago to invest in a head of marketing, which is super rare for a small fund like us, but I really see opportunity here. And Justin has done a great job in terms of building our podcast and our newsletter and our social media presence. And beyond that, to ensure that people really know who we are so that we're seeing the best deals in our space.
0: You know, and I, I want to encourage all the fund managers that listen to the show, that watch the show, even if, you're not a VC fund manager, even a private equity, private real estate. Look at what Vitalize is doing because from my perspective, I'm a marketer at heart. I love marketing. and but what you all are doing, I mean, I think that's genius because you're you have a newsletter, you guys blog, you're very active on LinkedIn. You have a huge Twitter following. It's all very engaged. So I imagine by the time an LP or by the time a founder interacts with you, it's like you've built all this trust like they already know who you are they already know what you stand for they you know it's like they just kind of soak it in you know we would call that content marketing if i could use the nerdy marketing term or whatever but it's branding and it's it just then when you have that meeting with an lp or with a founder or really any kind of meeting there's just like all this context and and trust built up I, it's hard for me to imagine that anybody's not doing that in today's day and age, but but they're not.
1: Yeah, it's mostly the larger funds, and there in, in venture, there's a long tail of a ton of small funds like like us. So I'll call those sub one hundred million dollars funds. And the way that VC works, as most of your listeners will know, is based on you know an operational budget built on management fees. And the smaller your fund is, then the smaller your operations budget. And that's why it's typically the larger funds that have a surplus in their operations budget to be able to pay for things like marketing and content. Um, And it's a luxury for small funds, but we were able to figure out how to do that at the same time where we were building our angel community and we see that content and thought leadership, branding community are all things that um, others aren't really focusing on, but we Mm -hmm. see that as a way to differentiate ourselves in the market.
0: Well, totally. And for the record, you know, larger funds with larger marketing budgets, in my experience, they don't necessarily do it better. Like a lot of the most interesting marketing is the founder or executive team or like the folks sitting in the seats, making the decisions, you know, that person, you know, like Gail tweeting in real time or on LinkedIn, like that, to me, that's the interesting content, you know, not someone three levels deep in the orb chart, you know, I I wrote this press release. Now I need three different people to sign off on it. I'm like that, that was marketing in the 1980s. Um, (laughs) You know, I think we've all moved on, but I want to talk about your fund specifically though. So speaking of marketing, you know, I think it's so important for a fund to have a thesis. You talked about the, the long tail and venture capital, by the way, a ton of our audience will not be that familiar with venture capital cuz you know a lot of vc it's has a more institutional capital base and a lot of our listenership are individual high net worth investors mm-hmm. um but in that marketplace of the long tail you know there's so many funds with private equity venture capital you have to differentiate and your fund is just so focused like i go to your website the theme is clearly the future of work, uh, the tagline that I actually wrote down investing in the work revolution. I love that. You know, I'm just, again, I'm a marketing guy. Like I land on a homepage like that and I'm like, okay, you have piqued my curiosity. Um, but I think a lot of our audience has heard those phrases, you know, the future of work and all that, but I want to know what that means in your view. Cause I think I've kind of heard a couple different definitions of that. What does that mean to you?
1: For us, we define work tech or the work revolution as people first, data-driven, really big ideas that transform how we work today. So I'll break down that definition. The people first is important because at the end of the day, it's customers or employees that have to have you know, this dramatic improvement in terms of how the work is impacting them uh, for us to get excited about it. And the second is data-driven. I've done 125 deals um, over the last decade. And when I look to see which companies are doing well, typically there's some kind of proprietary data that creates additional value. So that's something that we look for as well. And then the third is big. We want to um, invest in companies that are going after really big markets that touch sometimes number of industries versus something that would be considered more niche. Okay, so that's our definition. People first, data-driven really big. And then uh, we look at three areas within WorkTech. So the first is the transformative workflows. This is enterprise software, it can be horizontal, like a customer support platform, or it can be vertical. We did a deal out of our angel group in the vet industry. So antiquated, you know, veterinary industry, obviously lots of ways to impact and enhance the future of work. Um, and then the second is infrastructure for the freelance economy. We're very bullish that this area of um, our economy is going to continue just to blossom and get bigger. And then the third is HR tech, hiring, training, and employee engagement and retention.
0: Got it. Okay. No, you know what? I love that because you divine, you defined it very specifically in like concepts that I can understand. Very like concrete <laughs> ways you define that. You know, sometimes you hear like... The, Work Revolution, or just anytime really, just the word revolution. I'm like, but what does that mean in reality? So I think you did a really good job being concrete with that, but you mentioned one thing that I want to ask about, which is you know investing in companies like a a big TAM or you know total addressable market where big just big ideas, big concepts, big markets. So could you talk a little bit about you know the power law or just I guess as a GP as a fund manager? what you're looking for you know from from the financial point of view like obviously you're in, investing with founders that you believe in founders you like but just the economics of a vc fund it seems to me like there's you know quite a bit of pressure right like you have expense like what you do is expensive like you have to have a team you have to do due diligence you have to source deals you have to raise capital and all this stuff and then also just the uh, uh, attrition or failure rate of startups is obviously very, very high. So I think, you know, with, uh, with private equity or private real estate, you know, people are looking at like, Oh, a three X return in that, you know, deal. That's great. You know, but in venture capital, it's like, no, we need, we need the winners to do way better than that. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you look at that? Like how many, you know, percentage wise, how many of your portfolio companies do you need to be, to make it. And if they make it, how big do they need to make it?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for those who aren't as familiar with VC, what we as GPs are trying to do is get a five X net return on our funds. That would put us in about the top 10%. A three X net return puts us in the top 25%. So that's kind of baseline and a three X net return on an early stage fund. So that would be pre-seed and seed stage. Also probably series A. Um, That is commensurate with about a 20 to 40% IRR. So we are beating the 10 to 12% IRR in the stock market. If we hit that three X, anything less than that, we start to get into, uh, you know, we're about equal with the stock market. And then obviously we're not liquid. So we're not as good of an investment. Therefore we really have to swing for the fences when we invest of the 30 companies in my portfolio, I need to make sure that somewhere between one and three are going to be, you know, hundreds of x return and what that does is it helps me as a fund manager um, to make sure that i get that 5x return for my lps and in order to make sure that that's happening i have to one be a good picker and two be very clear with my thesis around what i think has the potential to get there that's why big is part of this it's one of the things that i've really learned over time Um, I also look for capital efficient founders. So can they get there without having to spend a ton of money? You know, I've been involved in deals where they didn't have to raise very much money after we invested at the early stage. And even though at the seed stage, um, my organization owned a very small piece of that company, that one deal can still 5X the fund. That's really what I'm looking for. Um, And hopefully I get a number of those. So it's even higher than 5X. (laughs)
0: Got it. No. So that's, that's the power law distribution though. And then in that, if there's 30 funds and in, in one of them, five X or 30 portfolio companies rather, and one of them, you know, in and of itself, five X is the return implied on that there might be 10 or 20 portfolio companies that don't make it. And that just kind of comes with the territory, you know, with venture cap, like in, in, in real estate it's like i need every deal to come back at least a single and then yeah. i want i want some doubles and triples i i'm not even really shooting for a home run with yeah. with the real estate deal you know so it's just a little bit of a different mindset right
1: yeah fund one had 27 companies we've shut down or exited for about a 1x it's about 6 companies so far um at the at, and then there are eight that are doing very well and then there's you know A handful in the middle that are it's still uncertain i believe based on where everything is trending we are likely to have three or four that are superstars so very big returns there's going to be probably four to six that are good returns and i'll call that uh three to 10x or three to 20x for those deals And then the rest are going to be zeros or up to ones, which, you know, that those are the the losers in the portfolio. And we expect, to Andy's point, um, at least half of our companies are going to be in that bucket.
0: Gail, I'm just uh, talking to you. I'm a little bit jealous. I mean, I just, I love this. I love this world of startups. Like, it's just, you know, even the concept of you can invest in a company that's going to 20x, 50x. 100x your capital it's like on the one hand it kind of makes my you know my style it makes me clench a little bit like oh that's a lot of risk but man when one of those companies hits it big or does a big liquidity event that's got to feel good right that's got to feel like you did something truly amazing
1: yeah i mean at this point i've i've invested in three unicorns um two of them with irish angels and one with um with vitalize and it and there are more that are coming, uh, which is, which is the cool part and the scary part. It can take five to 10 years to really understand how good of an investor you are. So you have to be really disciplined, which to your point, it is really scary. And I have no idea, um, if, if a company is going to make it or not, I have to make an educated guess. And a lot of it's based on intuition at the early stage, cause there's not a lot of data yet.
0: So what do you mean by discipline then? Does that mean, you know, you, you sort of named your criteria, so does that mean like oh I really like this founder, I really like this or that, but the TAM total addressable market is too small, so I yeah. have to pass. Is like that what you mean by discipline, or is there something else?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we have a we have a rubric that we're looking for. Does it fit into one of those three areas within Worktech that I mentioned earlier? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is the stage correct. So are they raising the right amount of money and they, do they have the valuation? So are the economics of the deal commensurate with what we're looking for? Um, and do we, I think that I can underwrite this to a hundred X return. I'm looking at all of those things. So we do diligence to understand what do we really believe is the risk profile and the reward profile of this opportunity. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the founder. Can they execute and can they execute fast And do they have a product that is very good already? You know, it has to be an intuitive user interface. You can't, I can't tell you how many I see that just, the product is terrible. And at this point in startup land history, like we just can't invest in that.
0: Yep. Understood. So I'm thinking, okay, if, if you're looking to underwrite for a 100 X exit someday, and then I'm thinking, well, what's a typical valuation? I don't know. Two or three million, or five million. You know, it sounds like you're dealing with more early stage companies.
1: Ours are t- typically at the seed stage, ten to twenty post, twenty million oh, posts.
0: Okay, so then we that
1: it is like five ish million
0: post. Got it. So then that's basically like you're looking to underwrite a billion dollar valuation, like a company that can IPO. Essentially, is yeah. that? Yep. Okay.
1: If I hit, if I hit at least one of those in the fund, then we're gonna have a good fund.
0: Okay. Now I'm going to ask a dumb question. So try not to judge me, Gail. And I'm going to hide behind Jimmy on this one because he was asking me. So both of us are angel investors. I was actually in uh, Hyde Park Angels back in the day when I lived in Chicago. That was fun. I had a great experience with there. there I did several investments there. Um, Jimmy and I are both limited partners in a VC fund. And we were talking about VC and Angel, and he was like, Wait, which one is the seed round? Is that the Angel round or is that VC? I'm like, I'm pretty sure Angel would be pre seed, and then you'd have seed round would be early stage venture capital, and then you'd have series A. Is that, am I, am I right? Can you just let's just pretend I know nothing? Could you just define pre seed, seed, series A, all that for all of us? Cause now I just, I've just confused myself even just now. Okay. I'm going to
1: answer for software, which is what I invest in. That's business to business software. The way that I think about the stages is based on traction that the founder has achieved. Pre-seed is typically either pre-product or post-product pre-revenue. So very, very early stages. When a company comes to us and they're raising pre-seed capital, it tends to be about a million dollar round. And, you know, a 5 million post is very typical. So they're selling 20% of their company um, at this pre-seed. And they're using that capital to finalize the product and to get early revenue traction. Then when they start to get that, you know, I got it ready. It's a good product. And I'm starting to talk with pilot customers. They're ready to raise their seed round. And a seed round tends to be somewhere between 2 million and 5 million. Um, valuations, let's say 8 post to 20 post. I've seen revenues at seed stage anywhere from zero all the way up to a million. You know, I tend to see about 250 K is what we look for as a hurdle point that is typically good. It means they've got a number of clients and they're really starting to figure out what their, what their clients want in the product. Um And so from there, uh, a founder is really trying to get somewhere between one and 2 million of annual recurring revenue for that software product to hit the series A. And this is what a lot of VC's will call early product market fit. So Mm -hmm. as you accelerate into that, you know, close to $2 million of annual recurring revenue, um, the, the later stage VCs get a little bit more certainty that you've hit something that is a true pain point for your customers. And then into series B, you're trying to hit 5 million of ARR. And each time you do this, you have somewhere between, let's call it six months on the very fast side, all the way up to two years to hit those milestones. So when a founder raises their round, they really want to try to raise enough to ensure that they hit that milestone of getting to, you know, the next stage. Otherwise they're going to be stuck in no person's land. And that's where, you know, we just can't invest in those companies.
0: Understood. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, what you just told me that kind of tracks to like Alex Hormozy. he talks about 3 million as a threshold where you have product market fit, but he's talking about a lot more content-based businesses you know, or e-businesses, e-commerce, that kind of stuff. Whereas I think software has more enterprise value. It's going to have a much higher multiple tagged, I think, to a software business. So that, that kind of makes sense. So then, okay, like a, a company raising at 4 million pre-money valuation, they're raising a million bucks. That So that would be pre-seed and that would be angel. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And the, the interesting thing about angels, angels can really participate anywhere as long as they have access. So we just led a seed stage deal. It was a $4 million round. Um, and the, those founders took money for us from some angels. There were five or so VCs involved plus a few angels. Um, so I would say angel comes in a lot at pre-seed, but it also comes in quite a lot at seed and sometimes even later than that, but most of it is pre-seed and seed.
0: So why would an angel investor come in at seed is that because they have co-investment rights or whatever or is that just because the VC fund doesn't want to bite off the whole capital raise like why would they why would they allow i guess uh, an angel to invest in a seed round
1: Yeah the um so a founder that has a lot of options is looking for the set of investors around the table that are going to add the right value Mhm this deal that I'm talking about is a great example where you know I'm bringing future work experience to the table. Another investor is bringing fintech. Another investor is bringing go-to-market. Another investor is bringing customer interest. Oh, I see. So like all of us are coming to the table with our own specialty and our own value add. And I want you know if I'm the founder and this is what I counsel our founders on: make sure that you one like everybody that's investing in you, but two they're bringing something that is unique. To the table where you're going to get value from it, and sometimes angels who cut even small checks can be very strategic. You know, maybe they've been a head of product in the same industry, and you need that expertise. As if you give them five or ten thousand dollar allocation in your seed round, you know, with the understanding that they're going to help you. Sometimes that that is the right thing for a founder to do.
0: Understood. And so, if I'm a GP, you know, leading around. In that case, I might rather invest, instead of investing 4 million the whole round, I might rather put 3 million in and let that founder fill up that other million with strategic investors who are actually gonna basically help execute or help give them advice or connections or whatever that will help them get traction. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I wanna talk about angel investing more, but before even getting to that, I want to talk about the capital base of your fund and just v c in general. it's It's interesting because I mean in in theory, like I guess, like in a textbook, this is all kind of under the umbrella of private equity, right? that you have I, I mean, it's funny how how much I talk about this issue with guests. I'm host of the alternative investment podcast. If you Google or go into iTunes, search alternative investments, we pop up number one. And I'm like, I still don't totally understand this. You know, what is all this called? Like people ask me, what is an alternative investment? And I'm kind of like, well, it depends on who you ask. So I can give you like seven different definitions. But private equity in theory encompasses private real estate, private equity, venture capital, maybe you know, angel investing. But they there's such different capital bases for those because like in private real estate, so many funds now are taking on investors with like 100K checks, right? So LPs is like the minimum is 100K. There's so many private funds now that take on LPs who invest 100K. Whereas in venture capital, my experience, the minimums tend to be a lot higher. But then the other aspect is with private real estate, I can probably, like if I invest in one or two or maybe three diversified funds, I can feel like, well, that's pretty good diversification. There's always a chance that, you know, one GP is gonna be a fraudster or something, but it's real estate, it's asset backed, you know, whereas in venture capital, it feels like, well, geez, I probably need to make more than one or two VC investments as an LP to feel like I have a, a diversified allocation to that asset class. So due to the higher typical minimums, I think, as well as that diversification thing. I feel like it's like, you know, you almost need to be institutional or family office to really allocate to VC. Has that is that your experience, Gail?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, there's a rule that the SEC enacted back in the '40s, I believe, that requires GPs who are raising more than $10 million to do that from 99 or fewer limited partners. Mm-hmm. Actually, the reason they did this, interestingly enough, is because back in the day when everything was paper-based, they just wanted to put a limit so that the folks pushing the paper weren't going to be overloaded. Um, so we, are, I'm part of some lobbying efforts right now. We're trying to increase that number because obviously everything's automated today, and it, it's really a silly, antiquated rule. But what it does is it pushes a lot of people out of this asset class. For me, you know, let's say I were raising a fund today, um, and my fund target is 50 million dollars. I only have 99 spots, so I have to make sure I'm getting, you know, 500k, a million dollars more than a million dollars from a good number of my LPs so that I can take a few smaller checks and still get to my $50 million target with that limit.
0: Now, does every VC fund have, because I mean, there's private equity funds, obviously that don't have this legal restriction that have hundreds of accredited investors. So it's just, is this specific to how the fund is legally, or maybe I need to talk to your lawyer. I don't know, but.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there, there's a, a QP. So qualified purchaser fund can have up to 2000. So a lot of private equity funds would fall under that designation. Um, If, if I'm taking money from accredited investors, that means they have a million dollars in net worth outside of their primary residence, but they don't have the $5 million level. Then I'm in that, that I'm in the SEC reg where I can only take from 99
0: investors. So okay. So if you have the lower threshold of accredited investor, you can actually only take on fewer investors. But if you set your threshold higher to qualified purchaser, then you could take on more investors. Is that yes? I that right?
1: Yes, it does make sense. But yes, we love qualified <laughs> purchasers. We love accredited investors. I'm I am a founder at heart and I'm trying to innovate on this. Um If we can't get Washington to fix this regulation, one of the things that I've recognized is, you know, if you create an LLC, so this is a special purpose vehicle Mm -hmm. and you have at least three VC funds involved in it, that means you can take 249 people to invest within this entity. They just have to be accredited and you don't have to pass through count those people. If each of those three managers is taking less than 40%. So we all take a third, which is less than the 40% threshold set by the SEC. Therefore it's on our cap table as one LP. So I have a couple of those entities um, being tested right now. And what it does is it allows a bunch of people to write checks into VC funds for the very first time. And it's interesting because you, you the way we set it up, one has a $20,000 minimum and the other has a $40,000 minimum. Both of them are $10,000 a year. The thinking being, Everyone who's accredited is making 200k at least of salary per year, and so this is a small percentage. Most accredited individuals can afford 10,000 dollars a year, and we want to open up funds to more people so that they can do it at a threshold that's safe for them, especially as you know as early as possible in their careers, so that later when they have more capital, when they have more net worth, they might say, you know what, I've really learned a lot about investing in these various funds. I'm ready to be a bigger LP.
0: That's a really interesting idea because that, that not only that makes it more accessible, but it's a more it's a diversified bundle, right? Because I'm like as an LP, if if you're going okay, if uh, a fund minimum is 500k, and I feel like I need to invest in at least three funds to be diversified, now all of a sudden I have 1.5 million allocated to VC, and maybe I want 10% of my portfolio to be allocated to vc so that means i need a 15 million dollar portfolio to allocate to vc which is great right obviously the definition of a credit investor is way below 15 million even qualified purchaser is so i mean that that sounds like that could be a, a really good solution for people
1: yeah i mean when i first started doing deals 20 so 10 years ago i um you know, I thought that the right answer was for people to build their own angel portfolios, but it actually takes a lot of time and energy, and you have yeah, to. Have- I
0: got to stop you there. Like that's me. I'm like, I lo- I did it <laughs> and I loved it. Like I did it when before I was a dad, and then maybe when we had our first, I actually loved it. But it it was almost more. It wasn't even just a financial thing. It was just being around founders. But and then I was uh, like on an advisory board of one of the startups, and that was fun but I just like, don't have time for that anymore. I don't know. And if you're writing a check for like 25 K or 50 K and how many of those are you going to write? You're supposed to do diligence. All of those just like, you don't have the time. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I personally have 45 direct angel deals, but I started doing small checks into funds. So I've written 25 K checks into small funds six times now. And I will do much more of that going forward. Um, you know in addition to what i'm doing so i'm i'm a mid-sized fund you're trying to find 50 million dollars as are the others that i'm working with but there are some funds out there that are 10 million dollar funds that will take 25 thousand dollar commitments from lps and so for anybody out there that is interested in starting to write that size check you know i'm i'm happy if they dm me on twitter um, or linkedin to give them some names of funds where they would be able to invest at that level
0: yeah and for our audience I have to recommend Gail knows, it seems like she knows almost everybody in this whole space because she's been operating it for so long. So it
1: is a so long time.
0: <laughs> she probably gets like uh, 50, 100 DMs a day. So it's very generous of you to even offer that. Um, I, I want to talk and shift a little to talking about angel investing now. So, you know, talked about venture capital. Angel is just more accessible. I mean, the thing I, Thing I like about it, and maybe I don't like about it, but that I like about it is that it's more time intensive in a way. But like, it's fun. Like to me, it's something I want to do maybe when I'm retired, just not even to for financial returns. Like it's just I love startups, I love founders. Um, But I want to talk about your specific angel investment platform. So this is the Vitalize Angels, and I know even that there are some details here. Something that you guys are doing real that's really unique to make it more accessible to even non-accredited investors. Is that right? Yes. Tell us more.
1: Yeah. So once again, I've been in the industry for 10 years. And for those of you who like data, I'll share a stat with you, which is alarming. Um, The percentage of dollars going to underrepresented founders today is lower than it was when I started in 2012. And the reason that's happening, if I take a step back, and this is a really important point for everybody to understand, you know, the the founders are getting dollars from GPs, so these are VCs. So the VCs are determining which kinds of founders are getting funded, um, and there is a certain recipe that a lot of VCs, especially the big VCs, are looking for, and that's limiting um, limited in terms of who is is able to access that. Well, it's really the limited partners who dictate where their money goes to the GPs and many of the limited partners are institutions endowments foundations pensions these are really large large pools of capital and so they have to write large checks um and these large checks go to the big funds and the big funds are investing in the same people so you see that there's just it's this virtuous cycle mm. that keeps happening and it, and it's um it needs to be broken And when I take a step back and think about the business model and is there something we can do to innovate, you know, I just told you about the fund, um, model that we're off where we're offering people the ability to invest a low amount on the angel investing side, you have a few things that you have to do to remove hurdles. One is to allow everybody to do it. So you don't have to be accredited. And the second is to reduce the minimum to invest. So where a lot of angel groups or syndicates require five, 10, or even $25,000 per deal, our minimum is 1000 with the thinking being, you know, let's say you're not accredited, but you make a hundred thousand dollars a year and you have $5,000 that you want to allocate. You can do five deals at $1,000 per year on our platform. And in five years, you have yourself a portfolio of 25 deals. And the most important thing is you actually got your checkbook out and you well not wired your money and you've done it enough so that you can feel the pain when something goes wrong and you can feel the excitement when something goes well, and you're seeing the reporting and you're learning and you're getting comfortable with the asset class. It's all about letting more people sit at the table.
0: That is so interesting. I'm thinking even as an investor, as an LP, you're like getting your reps in, right? It's yeah. like, it's kind of, it's better. I mean, I don't know about financially, but if you're trying to improve your own skill as an investor, it's better to do more deals, to say no to more deals, to say yes to more deals, to experience more of the ups and the downs, like you said. You know, like, like why as a GP, you have so many reps in. And I think that's, you know, that's the reason a lot of people trust you, right? And that's your credibility because you've done multiple funds, you've done all these angel investments. Like at this point, you've probably seen it all, right? But to do that as an LP, You'd have to have a pretty big checkbook, right? Whereas with this angel platform, it allows you to kind of succeed small, fail small, just get started with a relatively small amount of money.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting model. Uh, we we have 450 people in the group, about half are accredited and half are not accredited. And we're seeing checks being written anywhere from $1,000 to $10,000 per per deal. Um, so, you know, some people are allocating a little bit more than the $1,000 minimum, which is great. And we're seeing a lot of interesting things like colleagues are joining together, or we have some parents who are bringing their, um, college or just after college aged kids in mm-hmm. and doing something as a family. And we, they can do that because the minimums are low. So this it's this really cool model, which, um, it just, it opens up the opportunity for um, a lot more, you know, diversification, really sitting at that table.
0: I love that. Just the idea of community. Yeah. Like I said, that was my kind of experience with angel investing. It wasn't like, you, you almost think like, who is the angel investor with Google or Microsoft or whatever, they made a million X, but that wasn't my experience at all. It was more like people just having fun and kind of networking and building community and being supportive. So I absolutely love the idea of giving more people a seat at the table. So does this fit into your VC fund picture? Like are these pre-seed companies that might become portfolio companies later?
1: Exactly. Yes. Um, So if a company comes to us, their strike zone fit for our criteria, but their pre-seed So they're a little early for our seed stage fund. We ask the founder, would you like to pitch our angel network? And we explain that it's crowdfunding because there are some red tape factors that the founder has to consider there. We partner with WeFunder. um, So we we have all of that, you know, good processes set up. Here's what it looks like. Do you want to pitch? If they say yes, then our team will do the due diligence. We'll put it in front of our 450 investors. If we get collectively 50,000 K plus of interest, we'll close that deal. When we close that deal, the founder gets the cash and they also sign a slide letter with us, which will allow our fund to come into the next round, um, if that makes sense. We're actually, the, um, the deal that I mentioned earlier that we're leading right now was a Vitalize Angels company last year. So we got finally our first one where it came full circle. The founders knocked it out of the ballpark. We worked with them for a year. We effectively bought an option for our fund investors.
0: That's so awesome. Okay. Well, now I have to ask loaded question. I do have a dog in the fight. Uh, so if it's on, WeFunder, funder it's crowdfunded. If I, if I join the club and I invest in 20 deals, do I get 20 K ones or one K one, <laughs> or tell me about my K one situation here.
1: Well, here's why I love, I, I love <laughs> what we're doing. Um, so there's no fee, and no carry for you, the investor, and there's no K one, unless there's a distribution. And mm. when there is, it'll be one with all of your distributions collectively together, which is way better than ever, anything I've seen. Um, so the once we get past the the part of it's harder for the founder, which means you know we have to work really hard as the VC team bringing the founders, and we have to sell them on the process. Once we get there, everything after that is way better for our investors.
0: It's just really amazing. all this stuff that you've done, gail. i mean, the the thesis of your fund, I love that, and just your track record. But just like in all these areas of the ecosystem, I feel like you are removing friction and just improving access. Do you feel like you have, you know, are there other people in VC and Angel really working together to do this, or are you are you going against the grain? I guess with, with, there your are mindset. a
1: lot of people that care about this. Um, I, I think I, I tend to push the envelope a little bit on model. Um, I'm working on one that's even bigger right now. And if I can figure that out, then it will make a much bigger impact than what I've been able to do so far, which will be awesome. But I, um, I see little girls, Andy, I see little boys and, you know, when they're sitting in our seats in 25, 35 years, Unless we make drastic changes today, those girls are going to have so much of a harder time than the boys will, because nothing will have changed from today. And I say that after 10 years of experience in this industry, and you know, I've thought about quitting many, many times because I have to be so much better than the guys who have the same experience as I do in order to make it in this world. And therefore, I want to use my talents to completely you know, blow it up and see how we can make things happen. So that when those little girls and little boys get here, it's more of an equal playing field.
0: So, you know, I appreciate you sharing that, your experience as an emerging manager and just, I, I mean, I feel like VC is so almost like a, a daunting, kind of a daunting, you know, field or industry to break into as a GP. It's Like I said, it's amazing what you've done. Do you feel like as an emerging manager, it, it, I think I can use that term, you know, a smaller fund, you know, what you're I'm doing. emerging.
1: Is... You're emerging through fund three, technically.
0: Okay. Have there been other people who've kind of given you a helping hand, you know, in, in, with mentoring or anything like that? Or have you just, have you had to kind of fight your way to where you are?
1: The the group of people that I owe everything to are the angels and the GP or the angels and the limited partners who believed in me from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So these are the wonderful people I met through Irish angels and then the fund one for vitalized um, investors. And many of them are reinvesting in fund too. And, you know, I I've told them, I will always, always, always let any of you invest in my future funds for whatever you can invest. Um, because I really believe in giving back to them, they gave me the start here. And without them doing that, there's no way that I would have been able to get um, to get off the ground. And the other, the other thing I will mention is the set of other GPs that I have met in the industry is also truly amazing. Um, being in this seat, and you know this very well, it's the same as a CEO seat. It's very lonely. You have to figure everything out on your own. You have to do all aspects of the business and being able to go to the hundreds of other GPs that I know is a lifesaver.
0: Wow. I love that. And Gail, I just want to thank you for what you do, because not only, you know, everything you're doing removing friction and just being creative and trying to expand access. You also just back to the beginning, you're sharing all this stuff online, you know, on LinkedIn and on Twitter and everything. And I feel like that's already helping the next generation. I mean, I know you're technically an emerging manager, but I also kind of feel like you've made it, you know? I I mean, you definitely have, but you know what I mean.
1: I don't feel like that, Andy.
0: (laughs) Well, you have. I I officially, I hereby officially declare that you have made it. And I feel like just sharing, sharing the process, the ups and downs and all of that, that's helping influence the next generation, you know, the emerging managers of even five years from now. So I really appreciate just everything that you share online. And also, you know, the the cool opportunities that you've talked about today, especially the angel investing group. I love that. Um, we may have some potential LPs for the venture capital fund listening. So that being said, where can our audience go to learn more about Vitalize Venture Capital?
1: Sure. We have a website, vitalize.vc, or you can send me a direct message on LinkedIn at Gail Wilkinson or on Twitter. My handle is at VC.
0: And I'll be sure to link to all that stuff in the show notes so we can click it easily. Gail, thanks again for joining the show today.
1: Thanks, Andy.
0: That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.